Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakib hosting the show. Uh, it was quite an eventful day today. Uh, if you were watching Wimbledon or if you're flipping channels between the World Cup of Cricket, the action was in London. And uh, we have a surprise guest. Uh, this is again uh, very gracious of Rajiv Ram, who's just returned home uh, to Indiana from playing Wimbledon, has agreed to come on this podcast on a very last minute request. Uh, we have a big plan for Rajiv and Joe to come back later in the U.S. Open series, but uh, I'm very thrilled and honored for this kind gesture. Thank you, Rajiv, for doing this. No, th- yeah. yeah, it's very nice of you to say. Thanks for having me. No, no, I mean, you're a professional player and, you know, this is, this is just too kind. I mean, I've met you twice. Can't speak volumes of your niceness, but yeah, this is just taking you to a new level. So I'm sure besides <laughs> being a player, you are a fan. So uh, what, what, were your, what were your emotions when you were watching this uh, Roger Novak? I mean, these guys are rewriting so many new chapters. I mean, these are the biggest ambassadors of the sport along with Rafael Nadal. And this was one, uh, one crazy match. I mean, it had almost everything. The loser ended up winning more games, more points. And Novak Djokovic won three crucial deciding tie breaks. So what are the first emotions when you watched it? And then five, six hours later, uh, have you processed it? And just share it with the listeners here. Yeah, I mean, I think I was on the edge of my seat just like everybody else. I felt like, um, to be honest, I felt like the longer it went, uh, originally these were my thoughts, the longer it went, the more it would favor Novak. Uh, just because I feel like he's so difficult in these long matches because he some, seems to somehow keep his physical level um I, I i don't i don't mean that roger i thought was gonna get tired i just felt like somehow novak seems to maybe even as these matches go on i think he has a mental edge and a feeling about how how good he is down the stretch but uh you know as it went on i i really felt like after roger won that second set um seven uh, six one sorry in such a convincing fashion I, I i thought actually he he was the favorite at that point because i just thought that Novak's level dipped quite a lot more than uh, maybe I'd seen in the past. But then, obviously, it was just touch and go the, the whole way. And it was uh, what an incredible finish, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, uh, Novak is known, you know, for his, you know, unlimited reserves in this kind of match. He's so resilient. And, you know, Federer, then, on the other hand, is just such, such, such a shot maker. So, Rajiv, when guys like us are watching, and again, not you, but guys like me and, you know, people who play tennis at the club level and consider ourselves more of an educated fan, when we consume this tennis week in, way out. I mean, when we're watching a Federer, right, uh, there's so many options. Uh, and when you're watching, you're a player, you play at this level. So do you think sometimes uh, when a shot has been hit before it's actually an error, can you tell that, uh, you know, this was maybe an indecision? Not even Roger, just any professional player. And there were so many of those points where both men were pushing each other's limit and then all of a sudden, is there an indecision uh, moment that you can sense when you're watching this? Because, of course... Uh, you know, you play at the tour. At the tour, so just walk us through some of those shots that you saw today. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's 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 interesting because I think yeah, I mean, obviously, you're very nice to say I play at that level. I I feel like I've I've done okay, but I've certainly never reached anywhere near the level these guys have, you know produced over the last fifteen years or so. But you know, I think I think there's definitely some tactical things you can see. Like I thought. Today, I mean, Roger, as he should, used a slice backhand a lot more. I think if he tries to go hit for hit with Novak, I think that's a, a losing battle every time. Um, and I think uh, so he was trying to keep the ball low, keep take a little bit of pace off the ball and then make Novak hit you know, up on the ball a little bit so he can get a better ball to, to hit. And I, I kind of saw that pattern 
develop over and over again. And he used a few short balls to try and draw Novak into the net, maybe where he's a little bit less comfortable. Whereas, uh, for example, against a guy like, you know, Rafa Nadal, if he uses that slice too much, Rafa can take his whippy lefty forehand and, and really hurt Roger. So for in, in that in that pattern or in that matchup, he's got to execute some different patterns. Um, I, look, I thought the biggest thing that kept Roger really in the match was how well he served for, for basically four and a half sets. I mean, it was incredible. He, I don't think he faced, faced a break point through at least three and a half sets and wasn't broken, wasn't even close. And I think that constant pressure that Novak was feeling caused a few of those lapses and, and maybe the, that sort of uh, you know up and down uh, play that he showed, which he doesn't usually, you know, that usually doesn't happen to him. And I think just the fact that Roger was able to to hold on to his serve so well, so consistently, you know, made Novak feel a bit, uh, you know, just a bit under the gun. And again, uh, this is more like a fan narrative. Uh, well, you know, all fan bases, especially in the day and age of social media, there's so many opinions. But Novak Djokovic, again, you know, quite a worthy champion. The guy has won it five times now, beaten Federer three in Wimbledon finals, has beaten Nadal in the 20. 20- 11 final uh, maybe compared mm-hmm. to these two guys sometime he doesn't get you know the love of the crowd but he's a very respected champion so when you're seeing a player who you have shared a locker room with you know he's one of the you know you, you still play on the tour in the same era what do you make of his resolve when he's battling these crowds again the crowd wasn't hostile but you know a majority more than a clear majority was for Roger Federer but this guy just kept his cool he didn't get too fired up. He kept everything in check, but he just kept delivering, you know. This was like a heavyweight fight, and, you know, they kept asking each other questions. But from Djokovic's perspective, I mean, he's done it so many times. Uh, what do you think when you're watching, like, a colleague like this? You know, he's the president of the Players' Council, but, I mean, when he's playing mm-hmm. like Federer and Nadal, when the crowd's so against him, this guy has just made a living out of it. He takes the crowds out of it, yeah, and, I- you know. Yeah, I think uh, I think you make a really good point. I think first of all, I think anyone who plays Roger anywhere in the whole world is is not the crowd favorite. He's gotten to a a level of celebrity and and stature in tennis that I don't know if anyone's ever had before. Maybe maybe Borg people say when he played, but his career was much shorter than Roger's. So over the last really ten years, I mean, he's kind of reached new highs in that. And I think I think for a while it it really bothered Novak that he didn't get sort of the same amount of. Uh, let's say love or, or admiration that these two other guys did. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I think somehow he's turned sort of that, you know, he's accepted it and he's almost turned it into fuel a little bit so that, you know, he's in motivation so that when he goes out and plays these guys, he, he embraces the role of the underdog and the, and the, you know, not crowd favorite. And I think you watch it. I think he, he almost plays the chip on his shoulder and, and he's used it as a way to really um, bring out even a higher level, you know, in his competitiveness. And I think, Earlier on his career, you would see, you know, he would withdraw sometimes. He would just look like he wasn't interested. And I think that's um, that's been a, a real change uh, sort of in his in his mental makeup. I, I don't know this for sure. This is me completely guessing. But it just seems that way that he, he almost embraces that role now. And that's been huge for him in these big matches. Yeah, let's uh, keep more on Djokovic, you know, because he won his fifth Wimbledon title in the open era. He just tied the likes of Borg. Uh, and then Sampras has won, you know, seven, Federer has won eight. So it's a very, very elite club. Uh, and this was another, you know, like not a passing of the torch because, you know, Djokovic has been the best player. Like Federer said, you know, he's been the best player for quite some time. But uh, in today's match, interestingly, uh, the MPH and the serves, uh, Djokovic was serving slightly bigger than Roger. This hasn't been the case in the past. And then talk about that, uh, you know, the if you've noticed, you know, how serves gotten, you know, such a weapon. And secondly, how clever was his body serve today? I mean, that's, 
even from a doubles perspective. That's a very underused serve. But I think he caught Federer more than a handful of times. You know, just jammed him. And that, that was one of the, his go-to serves throughout the match. Yeah, I think uh, Novak's serve has been one of the things that he's really improved over the last year. I think if you remember not that long ago, he had a, a double faulting problem. His motion looked a little bit funny, and he's really straightened that out. He, he hit some really, really big second serves to me, especially, you know, up the tee on the ad court in the, you know, 110-mile-an-hour range and in certain moments, and he's not afraid to go for that. And then, like you said, he served smart, smart to Roger. I think, you know, he, he made it so where he didn't let Roger extend his arms. Um, and it was tactically a, a really uh, a top-class performance in, in that case. And it had to be, to be honest today, because if he dropped his serve a few more times, you know, if he happened to drop his serve in any of those sets, uh, the first or the third set, match is probably over in four sets somewhere along the way, you know? So I think, um, you know, look, like you said, these guys are, are, are continuously raising the bar for one another. You know, I mean, you saw it for so long, Nadal dominated Federer, the matchup. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's been the other way around now and Novak struggled against both of them. And now he's turned it around against both guys. And so, I mean, it's just, it's just, they continuously seem to, you know, make each other get better, change things. And, and and the thing is, they always seem to respond. All three of them always seem to respond, which is just the most amazing thing, you know? Yeah, definitely. And um, this is, again, an era. So uh, let's uh, keep this conversation with the final, then we'll bring more views from you on, you know, how these guys are viewed in the locker room, and then we'll make a quick segue and a very important segue to the doubles. So, and talking about, you know, this, these GOAT comparisons, I'm not going to go there, but I mean, uh, the way this tennis is played at Wimbledon these days, uh, there was a lot of news, Rajiv, about the coach being slow. Federer and Nadal downplayed it. Novak said the coach been similar. You played the same championships. Were the balls different? Were the, uh, people always forget the bounce is the key. You know, when we met in Newport, in Newport, the ball doesn't bounce as high. Those are old-fashioned grass courts. Here, the bounce is very true. But did you notice anything different in the bounce or speed of the ball compared to previous years? Was Wimbledon really slow or it was the same old Wimbledon like the last few years? The one thing that I really, I did notice it was slower for sure. And uh, the one thing I noticed, I felt like the grass was not cut as short. And when the grass is a bit longer, the ball just kind of gets chewed up in a little bit more. It gets, it's a bit deader. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't go through as fast. Maybe even a little lower bouncing. I'm, I'm not so sure about that, but it, it did feel slower to me, um, and uh, I think I, I have no idea if that was done on purpose or, or, or whatever, but I, I would say that's my opinion, that it, it did feel slower. It felt felt like serves and uh, you know shots that in previous years maybe were a bit more effective just weren't having the same effect. And maybe that, you know, again, it goes to your point about about Novak hitting so many more body serves because you know if you, if you if you hit a serve out wide or down the tee and you, you expect you know maybe a weak reply or an ace or a service winner it wasn't happening because the ball just wasn't having as much on it. Hmm. And uh, let's also mention the Rafa Nadal Roger Federer match because that match kind of set up the stage because the Federal rematch happened after 11 years. And uh, as a tennis fan, did you catch that match if we were get you uh, were to get your views on that semifinal from two days ago? Or much of that match I saw just a little bit here and there so I can't really comment too much but I just feel like overall in the past few years I mean Rogers really kind of changed the way that he's played against Rafa especially off the backhand side in, in you know in the past few matches that he's played and he's, he's really been able to sort of 
you know, limit that pattern where he that used to get him in trouble so much where where Rafa would just spin the ball high to his backhand and, and, and push him around where he just decided to, take, to stand a little closer to the baseline and, and take his chances with hitting over that ball. And, and I have a feeling a similar thing happened again. Hmm. And, and outside of clay, I think it's uh, definitely a matchup that Federer, you know, has, like you said, uh, managed to, you know, problem solve and has, has somewhat of a clear edge on hard courts and they haven't played in grass from, you know, 2008, 11 years later. So Federer was, uh, you know, victorious again. And, uh, this, this trifecta of players, you know, the big three and Andy Murray hopefully joins, you know, the single store soon. Uh, from sharing the same locker room, uh, how are these guys viewed? I'm sure, like, you know, they're legends of the game, but how, how are the situation actually viewed by you and your peers? No names needed, but uh, uh, do you see when people said that generation of Grigor Dimitrov and Kei Nishikori and Milos Raonic couldn't challenge? Or this is just like a single most greatest generation? I mean, there are a lot of views on that. So if you can just, you know, without giving any name, just if you feel like, just uh, talk about how these three are viewed and uh, what's, according to you, the next level of competition coming from. Sitsipas is pretty good. Kyrgios is not, you know, dialed in. Zverev is dialed in but not working. So the generation is there, but uh, I know it's kind of a widespread question. Uh, take a stab a bit, uh, at it, uh, however, you know, angle you want to approach it with. Well, I think, first of all, there's a lot of admiration and respect for these guys because, I mean, from us as competitive peers, I mean, they've it's a bit of what Tiger Woods did in golf, right? I mean, because of these guys, our sport has grown, our, you know, our audiences have grown, the interest level. I mean, they've become, you know, international superstars, um, not only in, you know, obviously their countries and tennis following countries, but all over the world. So it's really, it's, I feel like it took tennis to maybe even a bigger height than it was. So that's the first thing because I think we all benefit from that, you know, Um as far as what, what's next, I mean, we've kind of been asking what's next for some time, you know, I mean, they, you know, they've passed up a couple of generations now where they weren't able to catch uh, the, the, the new, the new younger players weren't able to catch them in any way, shape or form. And, and I think it's just, you know, these, these three or four players have really mastered, you know, the foundation of tennis better than everybody else. I mean, there's really not one area where you can say, ah, oh, yeah, you know, that that's a little bit of a weakness. I mean, they, they, they just don't have that. And tennis today, because of the way the surfaces are so homogenized, I mean, like you're just talking about the grass is slow, the clay is maybe, I don't even know if it's quicker or not, but it plays, you know, not that much different speed-wise to the grass. The hard courts, to me, the Australian Open is probably the fastest Grand Slam that we have um, speed-wise. And, you know, along with all the other Masters events, which are, are huge events in their own right, are all played on, extremely slow surfaces so i mean when you have you know guys that are better than everybody else you know already and then the surfaces don't change um it's going to be very tough for anybody to to really catch them you know you have to you have so you to think uh, homogenization of the surfaces uh, has uh, something to do with the next generation not breaking through because it's a more physical sport out there if the courts were faster uh, you think there could be more upsets? Like Australia has seen few upsets in the last few years. Uh, is that? Yeah, I think. I well, I don't. I don't want to make it sound like you know it would be. It would the next generation would break through, no question. But what what I do think would happen is you would see more of a diversification of of wins in some of these big events. I mean, you look at the Grand Slams, the Master Series over the last you know however many years, and it's basically been dominated by four players. You know, and you know you you get a you get one or two that sneak in here or there, but it's it's. It's nothing like it used to be in the 90s, let's say. And um, I think that's squarely due to, A, how good these players have become and how professional they are and how, and how well they've, 
you know, toned in their games, but also the fact that it's not it's not uh, a situation where you know, like like Pete Sampras, for example, was an amazing grass court and hardcore player, but he he wasn't the best on clay. And I'm sure he'd admit it, and and you know, he was he was beatable by a lot of different people on clay. Whereas you know, if you want to call clay Rogers' worst surface, I mean, he's still not playing for three years and making the semis of the French this year and winning a you know a bunch of matches in Rome and, and Madrid and all that. And so it's it's not it's not by any means a weak surface for him. It's maybe weaker for him against Rafa, but it's mm. only it's only weaker for him in in the mix of the of the of the big three or four, let's call it, not in the mix of everybody else. Okay, so yeah. again, uh, we both are Americans. I mean, uh, you, you you know, you've been living here all your life. I've, I've been here, I've spent like majority of my life here now and uh, I understand in the TV market setting in US, if Americans are not playing, especially on the men's side, you know, the, t- the sport has taken like a nosedive, but uh, Federer Nadal sell pretty well and you could see ESPN was talking about it. They were like, you know, all other non tennis shows we're talking about the matchup and Federer Djokovic and Nadal Djokovic also sell pretty good but for the health of the sport overall uh, what is what have you heard at the ATP level any conversation like uh, okay this these this is the golden goose the golden era but what's next I mean don't we need more players contending is is that seen as a concern maybe if I don't know if you attend any meetings or what's the locker room vibe I mean once these guys are gone of course, the sport's going to reset itself, but do you see it as a concern, like uh, how are we going to get the next, you know, like the new generation uh, announced or uh, get the audiences, you know, ready to accept these guys? Well, I mean, I mean, somebody's always going to win these tournaments, right? Wimbledon, US Open, Australian Open, French Open, you know, Indian Wells, Miami, these type of things. Even if Roger and Rafa don't play, somebody's going to win them or, or when they start to become less potent, you know, there's always going to be people, you know, who win these events. And I think, you know, maybe, and we're kind of maybe seeing that on the women's side right now, right? I mean, there's, there's been so many different, you know, major champions over the last, you know, number of years. It goes in cycles a bit, right? But uh, I think, is there a concern? I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of, in my opinion, a, a concern that's not really valid because it's just how the sport cycles through. I mean, you know, what, what was going to happen after, Pete and Andre, you know, stopped playing. What was going to have to happen after John McEnroe and, and Lendl and Borg? Well, you know, Sam Persnagasy and Becker came or an Edberg, right? And then, you know, what's going to happen after them? Well, the new generation came. So it's, there's always going to be somebody. You know, are they going to break records? I, I don't know, to be honest, because I would have said when Pete won his 14th major at the U.S. Open that that record was going to stand for 50 years and it stood for seven. You know, I mean, who would have ever thought that he's going to be the fourth guy on the list at this yeah. point? So, I mean, you just you just never know. And I think to, to think about that kind of stuff and to worry about oh who's next i promise you there'll be somebody next will they no no they Rajiv, what yes you're right sorry maybe i wasn't clear i was trying to just tie in with the homogenization and the success of the big three and big three are phenomenal but we we clearly yeah. know like there's a, a generation that just got missed so from that perspective mm-hmm. i mean these guys have you know like extended their twilight years and novak is still i think you know going to be the best player for a few more years and rafa you know keeps him in the french so i think from that regard especially in a market like us if a Sasha Zverev probably yeah. is popular in Europe, but if he doesn't start winning here, uh, yeah. how would that work out for the audience? I think that's where I was coming from. But yeah, your, your response was uh, pretty good. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I agree. And I think, you know, American fans are, are, are begging for an American champion. American tennis fans are, for sure, because especially, you know, we've had so many years of such great players. But the fact is, is that, you know, it's not like 
a whole a whole lot of players are, are winning these tournaments right now and, and just Americans aren't. I mean it's it's basically being dominated by these by these few. And I think you know the, the, the courts being so similar and and the players being so good about their own physical and mental health and their conditioning, you know, it, it, it's been sort of something like never before. So in essence, we're seeing results like never before, you know? Um, and that's why these guys are, I think are able to go, you know, so, you know, so much longer than previous generations and, and still continue to be at the top is because, you know, the advancements uh, in, in technology and sport and science and all that has, have been so great. Um, and I think, you know, we can't expect the same results if, you know, people are putting in different sort of uh, ingredients, if you will. And I think we're seeing the result of that. We're seeing three or four guys that have just mastered the game to a different level and are able to do it for longer because they're able to stay healthy, you know, both mentally and physically. Hmm. All right. So let's uh, go back to the Federer-Djokovic uh, match. And uh, you had a similar experience today. You were watching as a, you know, TV fan like most of us, 12-wall Wimbledon tiebreak. How did you consume that as a fan? And then, of course, you recently were part of other four players besides these two who played a 12-wall tiebreak this year's championship. And like Federer, you and Joe Salisbury served for it. So talk me through the comparison. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy the 12-wall on TV? And then how was it playing the 12-wall in an actual round of 16 match with quarterfinal you know, yeah, berth at stake? It's funny. It's funny. I... I... I, it was almost a bit. It was almost a bit surreal. I mean, you you, you played played Wimbledon. I think it's my twelfth or thirteenth Wimbledon. I don't I don't even know to be honest. But I mean, it's never been a question. It's always just just been advantage sets and uh, sorry, uh, you know, no ad scoring and an advantage fifth set. And it, it was a bit strange to sort of get to that point. And now you play a just a seven point tiebreaker, which seems a bit short. And I sort of had the same feeling today as a fan, saying, "Man, these guys just played for I don't I don't even know how long, five hours almost." And now you got to play a you know a first to seven by two for for a Wimbledon title and it just it just felt it felt to me a little short. But that being said, I I think it was the right move by the All England club to to not have it be uh, uh, you know that total advantage set until you you win by two games because I think if it happens anywhere else but the final in singles especially, it really ruins uh, that player's chances whoever wins for for the next match. I mean we've seen it. You know, not that many times, but a couple of times now. And I think it's just, you know, when you get in the 20s of games or even the 15s of games, I think I think the, the amount of effort and toll that takes on the body is, uh, you know, it's going to be really tough to bounce back from that next match. So as a fan, did I want to keep going today? Yeah, sure. But I, I don't know if that's right in, hmm. the, in the interest of, of the health of the players, which I appreciate. Hmm. And, and Federer, you know, like he's, uh, he's, he's known uh, to make a career out of putting difficult losses behind at least gives you know a very reasonable perspective in the press room which is the hardest time to talk but let's see how he recovers from this one but let me go back to you and joe salisbury you guys served for it ended up losing a heartbreak mm-hmm. uh this few days now if you feel comfortable so what happens like you know if you want to just tell the listeners here especially in the doubles because you know you you are a team so what happens after a loss like that do you talk about the loss right away do you regroup for a coffee next morning and then say okay see you in, in a couple of weeks in the u.s just walk us through that process yeah, I mean, I think everyone's different in that situation. I think, uh, you know, like for us, I mean, we, we, we didn't talk about it that night. Obviously, we were a bit disappointed and all that. We, we had a, a chat the next day and, um, you know, we played a pretty good match, to be very fair. I mean, we, we were down two sets to love and we, we got ourselves in a position to to win that one. And obviously, yeah, it really was unfortunate to lose, but we, we could have also lost 
that match, you know, quite a bit earlier than that. I mean, it, you know, the fact that we came all the way back and that, that, that showed a good bit of character um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, showed that we were, you know, obviously would have loved to have win that. But I think there was, for us at least, I thought there was more positives than, than negatives out of that match because I thought the, the level was pretty high from all four guys and, and we sustained it for a long period of time there. And you said you played the same team in Paris not too long ago, right? Yeah, we, we played them at the French Open in the same round. And, and so here's a funny story for you. So we played them in Paris in uh, the same round. Um, and we get to seven. That is obviously only best two out of three sets with a tiebreaker at six all in the third. But in that final set, those guys had Joe, I think, love 40 in one of his service games. You know, pretty deep in the third set, maybe middle of the third set. I can't remember exactly when it was. And, and we got out of it. So, you know, they're probably going home thinking, man, we just needed one point there and we're up a break in the third and we probably serve it out and that's that. So it's like these things, sometimes you don't, you know, you often dwell on the losses and, oh, I, I had a chance to serve that out. And sometimes you don't remember all the times that maybe you got out of a sticky situation, you know. And I think uh, that's at least for me what, what I need to focus on is that that match in Paris could have easily gone, you know, their way and it didn't. Um, and this one could have easily gone our way, and it didn't. But we, we did we did what we wanted to do out there, just didn't quite finish the job in, in Wimbledon. Hmm. In sports, we often hear, you know, like a game is a leveler, and a lot of times, as fans, you know, we only see the side we want to see. But someone was pointing out, like, you know, Roger Federer, the match point he hit into the stands, that's the same ending to the Andy Roddick final, when Andy Roddick hit a forehand long into the stands. And, uh, of course... It's so funny. I actually thought the same exact thing, because, I mean, that match, you know, I was... I was very much rooting for Andy Roddick to win that match, being an American, being, you know, yeah. someone I've known for a long time. And, and the fact that he, he didn't quite get a Wimbledon title, I thought that was his, his real opportunity. And he didn't, hold, he didn't lose serve for, for five sets and more in that match in 2009. And, you know, it went Roger's way that day. It probably shouldn't have, to be very honest. Uh, he won a couple of breakers there, I remember, that, that day. And it was almost a similar thing to what happened today against him, you know? Yeah, life does uh, level out. So let's talk about the doubles final uh, between Cabal and Farah and uh, the two French uh, pairing of uh, uh, Roger Vaseline and uh, Nico Mahou. I mean, that was four hour, 57 minutes, same duration as uh, Novak and Roger. Uh, what a match. Uh, couldn't have been like a better advertisement of the doubles. Of course, Wimbledon is one tournament. Maybe you can even elaborate more where my friends tell me doubles is really well received. Uh, do you have that feeling? And then talk about that. Uh, you know, epic doubles final on Saturday. Yeah, I do. For, I, I do for sure. I think in general, the tournaments we play in, in the UK, whether it's Queens or, uh, or or Wimbledon or you know Eastbourne or any of these other tournaments, I think they seem to really they really gravitate to the doubles game for for whatever reason. Um, and I think Wimbledon does a great job of putting it on, you know, on a bit of more of a forefront. Let's say, like for example, that that final was you know, slotted in a good time and, and, and really uh, the, the people really got into it as they should. Cause it was, a, for me, it was one of the best matches I've ever seen quality wise. I think you had four guys who deserved to be there who would, I guess, yeah, who had all been in a grand slam final before. I think Cabal Farah had been knocking on the door of a, of a big, a big win like that for a while, a couple of years now. And uh, Mahut obviously finished the career grand slam this year um, in Australia. And, you know, Roger Vaslin's been kind of long respected as one of the, the better doubles guys around, um, as you know, especially because he was such a good singles player also. So I think, you know, I think it was sort of the stage was set for a, a, a really good one. And, and then the boys, the boys all produced. Hmm. And uh, and how tough is it? It is again, sometimes we know like it's a cliche. Everybody, had, when I was talking to Qureshi a couple of years ago, and he said he's still only playing to win a major. Uh, so mm -hmm. I know 
you know, I don't want to, I, I want to save some of this conversation when Joe is here, uh, when we do the podcast later in the summer. But uh, how is it, you know, for you, a professional player who, you know, gave up his singles game two years ago, you committed to this uh, double sing. Uh, does your year also uh, revolve around the majors? That, is that the thing or do you want to get qualified for London? I mean, there are multiple goals when you start with a new partner. Yeah, look, I think, you know, I think obviously winning a major is uh, a, a goal. No, no question. But, but I think that, you know, we play a lot of tournaments during the year that I, I find quite, I, I, they mean a lot to me. You know, all of the Masters events that we play, if you are lucky enough to qualify for London, that one, you know, winning a slam would be, would be phenomenal. But this is where I, I bit, you know, if we go back to that you know, GOAT conversation, I, I, I think it's a bit overweighted. I think how many Grand Slams there is when it seems to be the only Criteria. The only thing when it comes to, yeah, to talk about the greatest of all time. For me, you know, the weeks you spend at number one in the world or, or at a high ranking, the, the amount of tournaments you win, just, you know, outside of that, I, th- I think all of that, you know, falls into the equation because I, I really don't think that the Grand Slams are the only measure of, you know, having a, a successful season um, or not. And I think so for me, I mean, you know, like we have uh, Montreal and Cincinnati coming up here, 2,000 level events. And I think, uh, you know, obviously the U.S. Open is the priority in the summer and you want to peak there. But it doesn't mean that these events before don't don't mean anything or, or, or you don't, you know, they don't. It's not something, you know, I, I'm just playing for the U.S. Open. I, at least I don't feel that way at all. Yeah. So you think uh, addition of Andy Murray to the double scheme of things is a boost? Uh, the doubles game can use because it looks like he's going to be entering more than a few tournaments. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think anytime any of these players who have such high profiles play tennis, it's good for the game, whether it's singles, doubles, mixed doubles, whatever. I think it's great. I think Andy Murray could be one of the better doubles players in the world, you know, without without question. But I also feel like it's it's great for the doubles game when he plays and the fact that maybe you can see how good some of the other guys are. You know, he's just, he's one of the best, you know, players we've had in this generation and that being said, it doesn't just automatically mean he's going to dominate the doubles court. Uh, now, granted, obviously he's just started and he's going to only get better and improve it. And he might be, he might end up dominating the doubles court. I, I don't know, but I think, you know, the guys out there, you know, that, that are on the doubles tour, they, they work extremely hard at their craft. And I think, uh, I think it's a, it's a wonderful sight to see when, when they're able to put their skill set against maybe a, a hall of fame singles player. And just to see how that plays out, I think that's, that makes for some really, really good entertainment. Okay, Raji. So let's wrap this up for the last five minutes and focus on more uh, what you and I talked in Montreal about doubles. So let me just field you those questions because I think uh, those are, that was mm-hmm. a good conversation. So, what do you sense when you know you talk to someone in media or TV, and uh, do you sense the appetite for doubles uh, overall in tennis? Uh, which way is this heading? Is it like what do you? What's the feedback you're getting? I mean, I know ATP is trying to promote it, but do you f- feel like? Uh, uh, it's heading in the right direction. People want more doubles, or you think uh, Tennis Channel, you know, is trying to show more doubles? Uh, which way have you observed things are trending towards as far as doubles goes? I, I honestly think a little bit of both. I think I think you know people say they want more. They you know they they watch it when it's on TV, but it's still not you know the forefront. And, and maybe it shouldn't be. And I'm not saying it should be, but I just think that. Um, in order for doubles to kind of keep going in the direction that we all as doubles players wanted to go to, I think we also are, we also need to make ourselves a bit more available. The, the sport is really a star driven sport, right? I mean, people love to watch the top guys play. 
um, because they're superstars. And I think, you know, we need to make ourselves more accessible possibly to, uh, to fans. And I think the tour can do a better job in certain situations of, of making, making that happen along with the players. I think we've had a couple of great representatives, uh, specifically Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez, who've kind of taken it upon themselves to, you know, do things to really help out the double tour. For example, you know, we have no buys in, in master series events anymore. So it allows more teams to play doubles together um, and, and stick together not have to split up because they can't, you know, they can't enter a tournament because their rankings aren't good enough. I think that's a huge, huge boost for the doubles tour. But I think, you know, like the Bryans have done, like some of these other teams have done, they've, they've done, they've made a brand for themselves. And I think that's really what's ultimately going to sell the doubles tour more so than the tennis. Cause the tennis, I, in my opinion is plenty good. I mean, the players are, are, you know, for me are working harder than ever at their craft because it's a sustainable career to be just a doubles player now. And do you also understand maybe the lack of accountability sometime, maybe that's not the right phrase, but uh, you know, because how do we say it? Because the market you know, kind of determines itself. It's definitely more singles-oriented as far as TV goes. Uh, but you think uh, channels are trying to do as much as they can. Uh, and you also travel internationally. So how much is doubles TV, doubles on TV when you are in different markets besides the U.S.? And you think, could there be an improvement how this is packaged together? It's pretty, it's pretty slim, to be very honest with you. There's not much. Um, I think that's one thing also. But the TV stations have a lot of say so and what obviously gets put on their on their network so i mean they don't seem to want to do that but i think that's where you know we can't go looking for them we need to kind of make a product that they want to put on tv and that that's making you know doubles players more you know stars in their own right then i think the tv the tv stuff will come to us um i think um you know people played andy murray's doubles matches it wasn't the doubles it wasn't the fact that it's four guys on our court it's who's on the court that makes the big difference you know and i think that's uh so we need to make it so where the best guys in the doubles court are are stars in their own right that people want to see on tv and uh and you know there's been a lot of talk about tennis politics and tennis leadership and you know Mm. Uh, that's been going on, but I want to get a doubles veteran's perspective like you. How has the, the sport done by itself? Uh, how are the numbers gone up for you know, the professional doubles players? Are they taken care of? Or is, it, is it better? I'm sure the game is trying to evolve all the time, but financially speaking, how are these tournaments being receptive uh, you know, to the whole doubles team? And have you seen any growth and where is it heading? I've certainly seen growth. I mean, there's no question prize money for everybody's gone gone in the right direction. Do I think it can get better? Absolutely. I think the Grand Slams are still paying, you know, especially are paying marginal percentage of, of their revenue. I mean, I think we're at, for the men, we're at 7%, which is just, I mean, if you think about that in terms of any other sport, you know, the NBA locks out if they don't get 50% of revenue and, and we're happy to play for seven. I think that's, you know, it's pretty ridiculous in my opinion. But I think... Uh, you know, back when you asked me about the question about what we think of the guys, uh, the top guys in the world and what they do, I think this is part of it. I think they make our paychecks bigger because they increase the popularity of tennis and increase the sponsorships and all that. I think we all benefit from that. Um, so, yeah, it's sustainable to be a doubles player only on tour. It's gotten better, but I think that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of room to grow. And I think, uh, you know, I'm not in the politics anymore. I was in the council for a couple of years, but I think... Uh, that should, in, in my opinion, you know, will be a big focus going forward, at least from some of the guys, is that, that you know, the amount that we as players get of the revenue that especially the majors produce is, is quite low compared to everybody else, or every other sport, I should say. 
Hi, so last question before we let you go. I know it's been two years since you last played your... Uh, is it two years, right? Uh, you last played a singles match at Newport? Yeah, almost two years exactly, actually, because yeah. Newport's going on this week. I yeah, believe. So, yeah, maybe so, two years about about today or tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, so do you miss the singles game or you've, uh, you know, you've just completely moved on? You don't... Um, so basically, I mean, I think, you know, everybody who plays tennis, and I'll, you know, myself included, starts to be... It starts to play tennis to be a singles player. And I was lucky enough to you know, be at the you know, at a high level, professional level for 10, 12 years. Um, but for me, the decision was more just, you know, body and, and mind. I couldn't, didn't want to put myself through the rigors that it was going to take to be a high level player in both regards. And I didn't feel like I could reach my highest playing both. And I still feel like my better doubles days are ahead of me. Um, and that's reason, the reason I you know, took that decision a couple of years ago, but it doesn't mean I don't miss it. I still love to play. I still love to practice. And, and when I watch, some of these guys go out there, especially this week around when Newport comes around, I think, oh, maybe I should still think about it. But it's so far gone for me right now that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with my decision. Um, and I think uh, I think my career will be better served and, and be elongated because of it. Yeah, we look forward to, you know, uh, you playing more doubles and hopefully uh, you and Joe Salisbury have a great season ahead. We're still halfway through. And thanks for taking time out on uh, yep. Sunday, Sunday night. Yeah, it was it was good talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Welcome to the Tennis with an XM podcast presented by Red Circle. This is Matt Zemek with Saqib Ali. Uh, did a major tennis tournament just end? Uh, were there some interesting matches uh, the past few days? Gee, I wonder what happened. So we have a lot to talk about. Might as well get right into it without a lot of preamble. Djokovic Federer, 2019 Wimbledon men's final. And that's uh, on the heels of Federer Nadal episode 40 on Friday, which really quickly faded into the background because of the memorable nature of Sunday's final. So, Sakib, as I turn to you and start this segment of our podcast, I've got to ask for your overall impressions. Uh, if this is not uh, the kind of match that's easily summed up in, in a few sentences or, or a quick headline, uh, it was a very complicated match. It was a match a lot of people weren't expecting, not in terms of the ultimate outcome or the fact that it was close, but just in terms of the particular flow and uh, some of the final stats and who won more points. Uh, Stockett, where do you start? We'll take this conversation in a lot of directions, but what, what's our starting place uh, for this conversation? I think very well said, Matt. Uh, this is definitely not an easy match to digest, and you write professionally about it, and you've been eager to talking about it because, uh, and I'm sure after uh, now more than 24 hours away, we both have, I think, more to add in uh, how we review this because this is something not, like you said, you cannot just talk about this, at least when it happened, and there's so much out there. Uh, so I'll just start about this match with, you know, what Djokovic means in Federer, Federer's career. Uh, in no disrespect to the Fedal rivalry, which is, you know, which captivates tennis audience, even writers like you and, you know, fans like myself and podcasters like, you know, Federer Nadal gets a top billing. But let's be honest about it, in the last five years outside of clay, uh, this is when Djokovic was playing some of his peak tennis and Federer was also challenging him with the Sabre and all those aggressive tennis. Uh, I think s their careers could have been very different because outside of France, these guys met in like 
four or five major matches, this one included. Three at Wimbledon, one at US Open. And uh, you can only say the 2015 Wimbledon final was a little bit one-sided after they split the two tie breaks. 2014 went the distance. Uh, 2015 US Open could have been the closest four-setter as, as many opportunities Federer created. And then Djokovic showed his you know, mental brilliance, you know, how he can dial upon the toughness. And uh, that, that four-setter is, again, something that we can you know, draw comparisons to. I'm sure you are eager to bring that in as well. So I think Djokovic really has been a defining uh, factor in Federer's late surge. Not only is a defining factor for himself. I mean, he's a GOAT candidate. He's legit, you know, you know in these conversations. A lot of people are saying he's already the GOAT. So all these conversations are very valid. So I think that's why yesterday's match was very important. Because when, when you look at this, it had Federer lost in three or four sets, not many people would have complained because Djokovic is the standard of the men's game. And after that emotional match against Nadal... Uh, you didn't know if Roger had the game to go toe-to-toe with Novak four years removed from the last time these guys played on a center court Sunday final, you know, in 2015. And so that's why this match is so compelling. Uh, given Novak didn't play his best tennis, and we've all maintained he didn't have to play his best tennis to win majors, and maybe he's comp- close to 90% in the tie breaks of his total ability, or maybe not, there's no way to tell. But this match had so many notes that both players... Uh, you know, we're hitting. And even even the celebration at the end was so muted with so much respect, like two warriors. Of course, Federer lost, so there was no point from him. But Novak Djokovic, the celebration was, okay, you know, I've done this. There was not uh, the shirt ripping that Carol Bouchard or some of those writers said. It was a very composed, muted celebration from Novak. Okay, I won this fifth time. I'm also in a league of my own now. All due respect to Roger, Sampras, and Borg. He joined that conversation. So I'll say more about the match as this, I'm sure, you know, we, we can exchange a little bit of a rally here, a cross-court rally. Why don't you go back now and bring into what I said, and I have a few more points that I'll probably try to make as you give me more input. Well, I wrote about this at TennisAccent.com, and it's just worth elaborating on uh, in this conversation. But what Djokovic did on Sunday... Uh, he, he achieved a lot of different things, but one of the particular details of this match is that this final, in many ways, mirrored the 2014 Wimbledon final between the two men. Now, obviously, the circumstances were different in 2014, but this was it was it was as though time went full circle uh, with this match because it kind of circled back to 2014 in an up and down match a match in which there were tiebreakers in the first and third sets. Djokovic won the third set tiebreaker to take a two-set-to-one lead. Uh, Djokovic appeared to be in control of the match at one point late in the match. Now, obviously, in 2014, that was in the fourth set. Uh, But uh, nevertheless, it did seem that Djokovic was just about to close things down. In this match on Sunday... He was up 4-2 in the fifth, and Federer was leaking errors midway through that fifth set. Djokovic had established supremacy. And then just when Djokovic seemed to be on the verge of locking it down, uh, he he flinched, and Federer was able to mount a comeback. And uh, in, in 2014, Djokovic faced a break point at 3-3, 30 in the fifth set. He saved that, and he broke Federer shortly later to win the match 6-4 in the fifth. Now, of course, in this match, Federer was able to break Djokovic, but Djokovic then broke back. 
Then, though, let's go to 11, 11, 30, 40 in the fifth set, a point which, you know, there were so, obviously so many huge points, but let's remember that there was an 11, 11 break point for Federer. He had a great look at a passing shot and didn't do much with it. I mean, it's true that Djokovic read the cross-court pass uh, to his deuce side, but Federer didn't even get the ball low. It was a passing shot that was relatively high, and Djokovic was able to hit a shoulder-height volley to save that last break point. So in 2014 and 2019, you have Djokovic saving a break point when tied in the fifth set and then winning the match shortly thereafter uh, to, to win in five. And so it, at the, you know, in, in 2014, Djokovic was coming off a two-year period in which, outside of Australia, he really hadn't done much at the majors. And like Yvonne Lendl, he had lost a lot of major finals. You know, Lendl made 19 major finals, and he won only eight of them. He lost 11. And Djokovic was in a Lendl-like cycle entering that 2014 Wimbledon final. And it was as though... Djokovic, by beating Federer at Wimbledon on center court, and that was the first time that Fedol had been part of a Wimbledon final. They had met in the 2012 semis, but this was their first Wimbledon final together. It was as though winning that match, you know, in the first months of the partnership with Boris Becker, really confirmed for Djokovic that, yes, he could return to being the guy he was in 2011. And sure enough, he became that guy in 2015 and the first half of 2016. And so what that 2014 Wimbledon final meant is that it represented a second beginning for Djokovic, you know, a second ascendancy. And when did the first ascendancy truly begin? It also began against Federer, and it also began with a match in which Djokovic saved two match points against Federer, that being at the 2010 U.S. Open semifinals. It was as though when Djokovic figured out how to win that match and winning that match gave him the reward of, well, you know, he lost to Rafa in the final, but by playing that final and seeing how good Rafa was in that match, Djokovic realized the standard that he had to climb to to be better in 2011, and he not only climbed to that standard, one could say that he exceeded it. So in the 2010 U.S. Open semis and then in the 2014 Wimbledon final, Djokovic played Federer in a hugely consequential match. He won each match in five sets after being on the precipice of losing. And so those two experiences transformed his career. And so this 2019 final was just kind of a, a it was the other bookend. It, it was kind of a confirmation that, yep, I can still do this. Yes, I can still play an uneven, erratic major final, the kind of match I used to play in major finals, uh, and still prevail. In the three previous major finals that Djokovic had contested before this one, he was a dominant, efficient player. 2018 Wimbledon against Kevin Anderson. 2018 U.S. Open against Juan Martin Del Potro. 2019 against Rafa, the best performance of those three, just a total demolition of Nadal in Melbourne. Djokovic was an efficient player. It was no, he was no longer the player who would wobble at times in major finals. And then weirdly, you know, he wasn't at his best in this match. I was expecting him to be much more locked in. He wasn't. And I did say to anyone who would listen on Twitter 
uh, on Saturday before the final that Federer needed Djokovic to dip in order to have a good chance. And I said that because when you play the big three back-to-back at the very end of a major tournament, and it doesn't matter which player you are, the idea that you're going to play lights out in both matches is just not reasonable. And it's not necessarily the physical or the mental. It's just that at least one of those two sides is probably not going to be fully sharp, if only because it's so draining and demanding to play one of those matches to play two at, at a very airtight level, it's very, very rarely done. So Federer was likely to go through the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs, which he did, uh, but the match was as close as it was because Djokovic also struggled, and it became a match that hinged on one or two points, and yet Djokovic, for the third time in his career, beat Federer in a major semifinal or final after having two match points against him. So it was as though Djokovic, after five years since that 2014 Wimbledon final, was just reminding the whole world, I still have the neck. I can still get out of jail. I can still get out of trouble. I can struggle, and I can still win the points that really, really matter. He has quite literally done it throughout this decade, from the first year of the decade, 2010, through the last year, 2019. And that's, uh, that's quite a run, like you pointed out. I mean, uh, Federer fans must have, you know, tried to stay positive and must have remembered those match points, especially in 2011, because those two match points very similarly were on Rogers' serve. And 40-15, uh, he quickly got to 40-15 that time and he quickly got to 40-15 yesterday. And then we all know how uh, these match points unfold. It's uh, quite, uh, not quite the same, uh, because the forehand in New York was legendary. It was just like a cross-court whip from Djokovic, which nobody could see. It just was, you know, a blinder. And uh, yesterday it was Federer trying to uh, hit a half-volley inside-out forehand on the, on the ad side. Uh, but uh, I, I, I'll try to, like, give a fan's perspective just to, you know, not counter, but I think elaborate your uh, analysis. A friend of mine who's a major Roger Federer fan uh, texted me when Roger Federer won the second set 6-1. And he was in disbelief. He said, what, what did even happen here? And he said, I bet Novak comes and wins this in four. And, and this guy, again, is a fan like most fans. And most fan bases sometimes do the reverse jinx or, you know, playing uh, overly safe or overly cautious. But this is the kind of respect, the monumental, you know, mental ability of Novak Djokovic that even his closest rivals like Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer. And I have a lot of friends who root for Rafa either, as well. And they never seem to relax when they are playing Novak. And this is just a testimony uh, how Novak Djokovic has established his legacy. That during Grand Slam finals, granted he was below par, a Roger Federer fan wasn't at ease when that set happened. And that's, uh, something, that's something very key. I think that's how you know, the crowds are watching these matches. And I would like to inject a quote from an audiobook I've been listening. I think it's a Nike founder, Phil Knight's book, The Shoe Dog. And there was something very key, I think, that resonates. I was thinking this morning, both these guys, it says the art of competing is all about art of forgetting. And, uh, you know, your limits, your pain. And definitely, Djokovic is someone who's redefining his limits. I mean, he's very hungry. He wants to, you know, climb Mount Nadal, then climb Mount Federer. And, and nobody's betting against him because, you know, he just looks like the best player and not slowing down. And, and this also applies to Federer, Matt. I know you would want to be eager to speak about the Federer piece. But I think Federer in this match was remarkable that uh, he knew what tall order he faced. 
And he also knew that the mental battle he had against Nadal. So this was his last, I mean, I don't want to say last chance, but this was one of his best chances. You know, the match was on his racket. And uh, Novak Djokovic, you know, his most tough, you know, nemesis of the last five years across the net, you know, trying to beat him for the third time in Wimbledon. And not only did, I mean, Federer had to worry about his level, you know, what Djokovic brought, like if Djokovic's level dipped, you know, at that point, you just have to take advantage and just, you know, and keep going. So I think it was pretty remarkable how Federer played, you know, that aggressive tennis. Of course, he didn't deliver in the tie breaks, but leading up to the tie break, especially in the last set, there were a lot of games when it got complicated, love 30, 15, 30. And against Novak Djokovic, the love 30 game is as well as a break point because that's the kind of tension you feel when you're watching these players go against him. He can turn the switch from 40 love. He's done it so many times against Roger, Rafa, you know, Del Potro, Dimitrov, you name it. So I think Federer did play a very, I think, flawless, aggressive tennis when the chips were against him. Uh, but it's just uh, kind of ironic for him and his fan base that, you know, he just did not deliver in the tiebreak where Novak was so dialed in and he didn't make any enforced errors. And a lot of people are questioning the quality of the match. And I'll bring you in, Matt, now. I still think the quality is pretty high. Just because Federer made, like, few errors in the tiebreak, I think that's still, that's still a lot to do with what Novak does because you can't relax even for a second. And, you know, as good as Federer was... The match was decided in tie breaks. So talk about the level of Federer, what you saw. And also, where do you rate this match in the Fedol or, you know, the big three matchups? I mean, given the monumental occasion and the kind of history every match, uh, you know, has when these guys lock up for a title match. What are your thoughts from Federer's point of view? And where does this match rank in the great history of the big three? Well, you know, when talking when talking about a match like this, we ha- we kind of have to go back to the 2012 Australian Open final between Djokovic and Nadal, which we all remember was five hours and 53 minutes. So it's the longest big three match at, at a major. And a lot of people said, epic, classic. And there was a lot of ordinary tennis in that match. But because of the length, uh, a lot of people, you know, assign to it uh, the, the, the label of epic and classic. And we have to get past this notion in tennis that if something is really long, it's automatically an epic or a classic. You can have a very long competition, uh, which, which has a lot of ordinary play. I mean, consider uh, there, was a, there was a French Open match involving Arnaud Clément, which was six hours and 33 minutes. No one called that match an epic. Uh, it, was, it was just a long match because neither of the players could separate themselves. And you, you will see a lot of five setters in the first two rounds of major tournaments that are five setters, not because of the excellent play, but because neither player can separate, usually because the two players are so weak on return. Uh, hello, Isner Mahu, as a prime example that just, you know, the match continues to be close and even for a long time. So with that in mind, you know, this was a four-hour, 57-minute match, uh, an extremely long final. So that's it was uh, a few minutes longer than the Federer-Nadal 2008 Wimbledon final. That doesn't make it an epic. So I will say this. The fifth set was quality tennis. The fifth set was legitimate. The fifth set was the real deal. Also, the first set was relatively solid, even if the points were fairly short. 
But in between, the, the second through fourth sets, and in particular the second set that Djokovic just immediately gave away, and large portions of the fourth set were mediocre to bad. Uh, in in the, that middle section of the match, we, we were all wondering what the truck was happening out there. So the middle sets were bizarre. The first set was decent, and the fifth set was the legitimate quality. And the fifth set was magnified not just by the drama and the stakes involved, but by the fact that these two guys had carried already, you know, three hours and 45 minutes under their legs, and they continued to battle deeper, deeper, deeper into that fifth set. And they dug out some tough holds, and they played some legitimately spellbinding points. I mean, that that certainly was worth remembering. But just because the fifth set is special, that doesn't mean that the first four sets uh, deserve to be spoken of in, in the same light. So, so that has to be mentioned that, you know, size doesn't always matter. Uh, and a lot of people might chuckle at that statement. I, I'm kind of wanting to lighten the mood here, but let's genuinely remember that. And there's a definite connection with 2014 in this respect as well, Sokka, 2014 Wimbledon, I mean, in 2014, the women's final was 55 minutes, but Petra Kvitova played absolutely perfect tennis against Eugenie Bouchard. It was just an absolute masterclass on grass. That Those 55 minutes were so radiant that you would call that a high-quality match. Yes, you could say that Bouchard maybe could have, should have offered a little bit more resistance, but this was Petra Kvitova. Wimbledon champion in 2011, returning to center court in a final and playing the sport of tennis about as perfectly as possible. So, so what if it took only 55 minutes? Right against Serena Williams. And that match lasted 56 minutes, one minute longer than Kvitova five years ago. So that has to be figured into the larger appreciation and understanding of these matches, not only the men's final in 2019, but also the women's final. That length, size doesn't always matter. We have to get past that notion in tennis. Yeah, I think that's, that's a fair comparison, and quality comes in many shapes and forms. My only counter-argument as a fan is, a lot of times, you're right, you know, the, the first few sets uh, didn't measure up to the last set, but a lot of times a casual fan, and it's not to disrespect anyone, because a lot of friends who, you know, call themselves casual fans, they're sport fans, they tune into Wimbledon and US Open and watch all these matches, a lot of times the occasion can, you know, again, uh, bring in the substitute word epic, because if someone's watching four matches a year and three of them are between big three and two go the distance, they don't really care if a Rome 2006 uh, Federer Nadal match is the greatest quality or Federer Wawrinka played a beauty at the World Tour Finals. I think for them, it's just like it's fifth set, eight, six in the fifth, if it's Nadal or Nole, whoever's winning it. So I think that's always uh, the balancing act, Matt. I know sometimes you're catering to the purists, but there are also a lot of people who just tune into majors who tune in for tennis with an accent podcast and radio articles. So I think that's where sometimes the confusion lies because the moment itself... A first 12-all tiebreak is introduced and the two of the greatest players of all time are, you know, playing for history. One is going for nine, the other is trying to be the fourth player in the opener to win five. 
So it's hard telling people that, you know, you can discount the 6-1 set because even the great Borg McIndroe final had a 6-1 set. That's true. And so I just, just here's a helpful distinction. We should call it a classic drama or a classic battle as opposed to a classic match. That's really the modest proposal that I'm making, that it was a it, it had epic drama. It had epic tension, but epic tennis not the same thing. So we can call it classic and epic in certain ways. Sure. But let's just not assume that this so, was a better quality match. Just that we can make that distinction as analysts and commentators, allowing the moment, which was obviously supremely significant. This was, historically speaking, the most significant uh, and resonant Federer-Djokovic match of all time. But you wouldn't go so far as to say it was appropriately the same high, soaring, uh, remarkable level of tennis. There were some memorable points, but it was it was historically significant, but not historically great tennis. So we can just make that basic distinction. So quality-wise, the four uh, Federer-Djokovic matches we mentioned, the two U.S. Open five-setters and the two five-setters here, which one would you rate in one to four quality-wise? That has everything. If you were to re-rank the Fedol matches between uh, at Wimbledon and U.S. Open, the two five, four five-setters. Okay, well, I'm going to make two subdivisions here. Um, the, the best single-person performance would be Djokovic in the 2015 Wimbledon final between the two men. Djokovic over four sets was absolutely phenomenal. Federer had to fight like heck. Uh, to steal that second set in an extended tiebreaker. Djokovic was magnificent that day. So in terms of a one-person performance, it would be that. Uh, in terms of both men playing well at the same time, uh, it's a close call between the 2011 U.S. Open semifinal and the 2014 Wimbledon final. I'm, I'm going to give a slight edge to the 2014 Wimbledon final because you did have tiebreakers in both the first and third sets, whereas... The U.S. Open was a little in 2011 was a little bit more about Federer surging in the early sets than Djokovic gaining ground later in the match. Uh, so it was a little bit more up and down. Uh, the, the 2014 Wimbledon uh, final was a little bit more even in terms of both men playing well at the same time. Then you had Djokovic playing well at the start of the fourth, Federer playing well at the end of the fourth, and then the battle was immediately rejoined in a very even Set. And when, when Djokovic broke Federer in the uh, 2011 U.S. Open semifinals, that was something of a capitulation by Federer at the very end. Djokovic won the last four games. Hmm. In the 2014 Wimbledon final, it was more of, it, it remained close, 4-4, Djokovic holding for 5-4, and Federer did not play a bad final game of the match. Djokovic just put some amazing returns of well-placed serves on the baseline, uh, he just played a phenomenal return game to break and close out that match. It wasn't so much that Federer lapsed. It was more of Djokovic surged uh, at the very end. So I, in terms of two men playing well at the same time, 2014 Wimbledon narrowly edges out 2011 U.S. Open. Okay. Um, I, I agree, but with a slight disagreement. I think 2010 U.S. Open is where both men for extended periods of time played you know, you know, great rallies, and that was, I think, uh, the best U.S. Open match. And of course, 2014 Wimbledon, I, I, I agree with you, is the best match of this rivalry. 
but uh, 2019, I think, for the sheer presence of where they are in their careers, as Djokovic keeps inching towards, you know, those numbers and, you know, not slowing down. And Federer, four years removed from 2015, when he looked like playing some of his best tennis, could manage to stay with Novak, I think, was uh, pretty groundbreaking. So, I know Roger Federer has had these, you know, we've written about it, many losses where people and very seasoned writers and fans included have written him off or they think how he's going to bounce back but the man keeps coming back. This is going to be a hard one, but what do you learn from Federer and are you going to be putting him in the mix for the US Open given the courts were slow, humid conditions there? Uh, what's the Federer postmortem? Of course, you know, he's going to play Cincy and then US Open, but uh, what are, what's your takeaway? Well, first off, and I just for anyone who's listening to this podcast, and maybe you're a Djokovic fan, maybe you're a Federer fan, maybe you're a Nadal fan, maybe you're a fan of Murray or, or a Delpo or another player, but anyone should be able to have the same basic mindset here. Who in their right mind would question Roger Federer's ability to bounce back from this loss? What, what detail of history over the past 15 years would suggest that, oh, this is going to be the time that Federer you know, just can't handle it, that this is going to be the time that Federer fades away. When has this ever happened? What, what basis or evidence is there for the idea that, oh, you know, he's done, he's not going to get off the canvas, he's finished, he's through, this is going to stick with him forever? Whenever he has had these extremely tough losses, what has happened within the next several months? So 2010 U.S. Open, he loses uh, that U.S. Open semifinal to Djokovic after being two match points up. What happened at the French Open? He stopped that over 40-match winning streak by Djokovic at Roland Garros, and he did the finger wag on Chartrier late, late in the evening. He lost the 2011 U.S. Open semifinal after having the two points on his serve and after Djokovic hit the shot at 40-15. What does he do the next year at Wimbledon when he played Djokovic in the semifinals? He beat him in four, and he won his 17th major at Wimbledon, beating Andy Murray. So when Federer has these incredible losses, he just moves on. And he, it is remarkable that he does, but it is consistent that he does. It is consistent that he has always managed to pick himself up. He's almost 38. He's going to turn 38 in a few weeks and he is legitimately not just one of the three best players in the world, but he came within one point of beating Rafa and Novak in consecutive matches to win a ninth Wimbledon. He is at the top of his game. Does this mean that the 37-year-old Federer would beat the 27-year-old Federer who uh, won his 15th major at Wimbledon in 2009? Not necessarily, but in terms of wisdom, in terms of understanding, in terms of how to manage his body, manage matches, and to learn new things in terms of his return, something that Mert Ertunga pointed out quite well uh, after the Nadal semifinal victory. You know, he is still tweaking his games. He's still tweaking his tactics. He's showing an ability to make small but important change-ups in his approach that keep his opponents off balance he is still operating really as a fully formed elite tennis player. So with the men's field, with the men's game being as weak as it is, it comes down to this at the U.S. Open just on a general level. You know, Federer Federer's probably going to be the number three seed. He might have a chance to overtake Rafa for number two. Rafa is defending 1,000 points in Canada. So 
you know, Rafa has to put up at least a decent result to, you know, solidify that number two seed for the U.S. Open. But let's say Federer is the third seed, and let's say he gets it Rafa's half, not Djokovic's half. Everything that we know about Rafa from hard court tennis and, and, the, and the, the way the, the, the hard courts take a toll on Rafa's knees, if Federer gets Nadal's half, uh, he will have a very good chance of meeting Djokovic in the final. So the idea that Federer is going to shrivel and this is going to be the knockout blow, it, it doesn't make sense on its face. And then I would add this, Sakib, in terms of an observed uh, look at, at uh, what happened after Sunday's final. He was not nearly as devastated as he was when he lost the 2008 Wimbledon final to Nadal. And because as our friend and, and our colleague at Tennis with an Accent, Andrew Burton, wrote at TennisAccent.com, Federer's been here before. Federer's fans have been here before. He's been through this. This is not quite old hat, but he does have the very tangible and real experience of having lost a, a really crushing match. He was not nearly as affected as he was 11 years ago. Because 11 years ago, if we can briefly put our minds into that world for a little bit, let's remember that Federer had won five straight Wimbledons. And outside of Nadal uh, on clay, he, he had barely been touched at the majors over the past several years. Now, of course, earlier in 2008, he did lose Australia to Djokovic, but he had mononucleosis, and he still made the semifinals of a major while having mono. So, you know, that, that result really was incredibly good. Even though he didn't win Australia, it certainly was not, you know, some alarming dip in form just in, in terms of the pure quality of his tennis. So Federer knew that he was a virtually untouchable player outside of Roland Garros. You know, that was the one place Rafa could always lock down against him. But everywhere else, Federer was the king back then. So, you know, he knew that Rafa could beat him. But nevertheless, when that match finally did end, 9-7 in the fifth, it was a shattering moment because it had never happened before. It was new. And that was certainly part of the impact which crashed down on Federer's mind and his shoulders, and that's why he was so devastated after that match. And you compare this past Sunday to that moment 11 years ago, night and day. You know, Federer was very matter-of-fact in accepting what happened because he's been through the journey, and there isn't the same need to prove himself. I mean, he, ha he still loves tennis as much as he did 11 years ago, but the, the, the circumstances and the pressure... And the scrutiny from the media, you know, the media did not have a lovey-dovey relationship with Federer 11 years ago. You know, there, there, me, people in the media were wondering, you know, as soon as he lost to Nadal, as soon as the balance of that rivalry began to tip in Nadal's favor away from Clay, uh, you know, people wondered, well, is this the end? Is this the decline? Is this the fall of the king? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And today it's a completely different reality with the media fawning over Federer at every uh, twist and turn, every nook and cranny. So it's just a very different world for Federer. The, the Rafa Wimbledon final in 2008 was such a far more traumatic experience for him than this. He has four beautiful kids. He has a little wife. He has so much going for him. He's not going to let this match affect him. But in 2008, he was a much more lonely figure uh, there was a lot less of a support network for him to, to lean on. It's just a very different context, and this match is not going to drag him down. No, it, it will not, and uh, I don't want to dwell too much on this point, but i just like to add, I think you 
covered a lot of territory there and uh, a lot of resounding, you know, uh, reasons why Federer would move on and he would probably, you're right. But never ever in his illustrious career and in even those haunting losses, the 28, uh, 2008 Wimbledon and the two Djokovic losses, he never served for a Wimbledon title. And as, as our good friend Murta Tunga said in our one of our DMs, when you're serving, no matter how good Djokovic is, you know, or, or you know, Murray is or the returner, you are expected to win a service point. And that's what Federer said. It was an incredible opportunity missed. I have zero doubt that, you know, he will, uh, he will not recover. But I think this is the one that's going to stay for a while because when you're older, you have all the experience in the past of, you know, uh, to control your emotions. You've been there before. So have the fans. But at the same time, you also value these chances more because when you're 24, 25 year old, you lose a Wimbledon final, you know the time is on your side. Not that he's not fighting one of the best battles against time. He's leading a break in the fifth, you know, even against father time. But you don't get to serve for a Wimbledon title even as good as Roger Federer is. You know, these chances just don't come by that often. So I think that's going to stay with him. But I'm not doubting that the man doesn't come back and puts on a show in Cincy or in New York. So I think we should still talk a lot about Novak, but depending on your time, uh, let's bring Simona Halep quickly. And you've written about the fighter girl and, you know, the whole narrative, which has been overlooked by the U.S. media uh, because certain cliches work here. And she's someone, uh, you know, who just played some of the most, you know, brilliant tennis. Of course, Serena Williams wasn't close to her best, but you still don't make Serena Williams look like a 6-2, 6-2 scoreline. And uh, talk about that. I mean, uh, let's let's dwell on what happened on Saturday on the center court. Well, sure. So, you know, a really good starting point for this is that Serena Williams' semifinal opponents, let's look at that particular factor, her semifinal opponents uh, in her last three runs to major finals. So last year at Wimbledon, last year at the U.S. Open, and then this year at Wimbledon. Serena's semifinal opponents were all making their first appearance in a major semifinal. So last year it was Julia Gerges uh, at Wimbledon, then Anastasia Sevastova at the U.S. Open, and then this year um, Barbara Stritsova uh, at Wimbledon. So three players who, you know, obviously very talented. If you make a Wimbledon semifinal, you, you have to have a lot of ability. But nevertheless, compared to all the other possible alternatives Serena could have faced in any of those three semifinals. You know, she could have faced Sloane Stephens uh, instead of Sevastova at the U.S. Open um, last September. She could have faced uh, Petra Kvitova uh, instead of Stritsova uh, in, in this match uh, this past week at Wimbledon. You know, so not playing a an elite player who, with proven late stage major tournament experience in the semifinals just offered very little preparation for the final. And in each of those three finals, Serena went up against, you know, not the exact same kind of player, but you can find a lot of similarities among Angelique Kerber, Naomi Osaka, and now Simona Halep. And the thing that they all have in common is their movement and court coverage. They're all great movers, and they were all able to turn those matches into very athletic matches in which as as the rallies went on and Serena couldn't end the point quickly with a serve and a forehand, with a one-two punch, as soon as those rallies became more extended, the movers, the runners, were able to move Serena around the court, get her out of position, 
and and establish rallies on neutral enough ground that they could just lengthen the battle and then wear Serena out. I mean, really, all three of those finals bore the same uh, details. So it's an immense credit to, to Halep, not just that she executed that plan and using her court coverage and movement to full effect, but also that she was able to get so many free points on serve. And that was really the big question mark for Halep going into that match. Would she be able to win so many points on her first serve that Serena would not get many looks on her second serve and, and really turn the match uh, in her favor by dominating Halep's second serve? And Halep did a really good job in particular of doing something that Brad Gilbert had mentioned on ESPN the day before this Wimbledon women's final. Gilbert said, and he was correct in his analysis, the match certainly bore this out, that Halep needed to not necessarily go big for all of her first serves. She did for some, but not all. It was important for Halep to simply hit, a, make a lot of first serves and, and choose you know, several dozen first serves to you know, just get them in, if only to avoid having to hit a second serve. So, so Halep went for her first serve a lot, but she also hit some get-me-in versions of first serves. And that commitment to a high diet of first serves, not always with huge pace or with perfect placement, but just getting more first serves in, that game plan worked to absolute perfection. And it has to be noted that you know, for Halep to win not just a second major, but a second major at a tournament other than Roland Garros on a different surface and to win a major without being coached by Darren Cahill, even though they console each other, nevertheless, she does. She has won this Wimbledon with a new coach. To do all of those things, it, it dramatically and appropriately transforms the way we see her. Because when, whenever we look at a tennis player, Sakib, the, the jump from never having won a major to winning your first major is huge, of course. No one needs an explanation for that. But it needs to be said that the jump from having one major to two is almost as significant. It is almost as large. As soon as you win that second major, you get rid of the label that you're a one-hit wonder, which is almost as burdensome as the idea that you're the best player never to have won a major, which is something that Karolina Pliskova uh, is still dealing with. So, so Halep, by making that jump from one to two and doing it on a surface other than clay and doing it with a coach other than Darren Cahill, man, to do all of that at once it is just an enormous leap forward for her career. And it's really very satisfying to see all that hard work pay off for Simona Halep. All right, as we wrap this conversation up, I know you have uh, uh don't you don't have much time uh, as we record this and you know we got quite a lot for this conversation where does novak and simona go from here i mean uh what do you again different graphs uh, novak is a you know most dominant player in the game right now and simona halep wins wimbledon well how do you see you know their summers leading up to the us open of course we'll be doing a lot more between now and then but what's the parting thoughts for the two champions from wimbledon well, it, it, they, they live in two different worlds in this sense. With Novak, you totally expect him to win the U.S. Open. You know, he is the clear favorite. Hard courts are his turf. You know, the, the thing that uh, Nadal and Federer fans are going to hope for is, you know, some overwhelming humidity in New York, similar to what we experienced last year, but with an opponent better than Martin Fuksovic uh, in the early rounds to take him out. I mean, that's what Fedal fans are going to be hoping for. But assuming that the weather's not extreme, it is totally 
Djokovic's tournament to lose. And, you know, each of the next two majors are on hard courts. So you could have Djokovic with 18 majors before he turns 33 in May of 2020. So, you know, Djokovic's path toward winning the most majors out of anyone in the big three, it's a very clear path right now. So not a lot of questions about Djokovic. He seems pretty set. And then with Halep, on the other hand, it's a very intriguing future, but one that is intriguing not because it seems obvious that she's going to win. No, that's Djokovic's reality. The, the intriguing part of Halep is, can she stack together performances? And this goes back to the conversation that we had on your podcast socket with Andrew Burton before Wimbledon. Is there going to be one WTA player who really takes hold of the tour and stacks together good tournaments at majors? You know, we've had three majors this year, so that means 12 semifinal berths, you know, four at each tournament, and there have been 12 different women playing in semifinals. So this U.S. Open is going to determine if we're going to have 16 different women semifinalists at the majors this year or if someone such as Halep or also Naomi Osaka can replicate a semifinal appearance. So that is going to be the big test awaiting Halep in New York. I think we covered quite a lot, Matt, and this was quite uh, a Wimbledon fortnight, uh, which I think you and I and many tennis fans and many writers will be talking about for, for quite some time. So on, on that note, let's conclude this edition and we'll be back with a weekly podcast a week from this podcast is published, a week from that day. And we also want to thank our partnership at Radio, so not Radio, Red Circle, uh, still using the old name. Uh, yeah, Red Circle has been pretty instrumental in pushing our podcast, bringing us on Google Google Play, which was a big win for the team. So, yeah, just uh, whoever's listening, please share this episodes with your friends. Do drop in a line of critique if you don't like the way we are going, if you can, you know, tell us how we can improve, or even if you just like the way these podcasts are conducted. Matt, any parting thoughts before we wrap the show? Yeah, no, just please subscribe to and rate and review our podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. But if you don't use Apple devices, um, then subscribe, rate, and review on Google Podcasts and also Stitcher, uh, those subscriptions, they, you know, it's just taking a few minutes out of your day. But the, the more you subscribe to and rate us, the better we show up on search engines. So that helps our visibility, which helps our ability to attract future future advertisers and sponsors. And on that last note, we want to just thank once again, Stats Insider, based in Australia, statsinsider.com. .au for sponsoring our Wimbledon podcast. We're really grateful to Nick Splitter and the rest of the team at Stats Insider in Australia uh, for working with us. It's been a great partnership and uh, we hope to continue it later on this tennis season.